Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. I have to admit that on first encounter, the early Buddhist text struck me as abstruse and disconnected, and that given their antiquity and obscure history, I fully expected them to remain so. With further engagement over time, however, I was delighted to discover a brilliant, methodical, and consistent mind shining through those profound teachings. And now I marvel at how well time has treated these ancient texts. Among other things, I recognize the coherence and consistency of the Buddha's overarching methodology. Clarity about this methodology is a gateway to understanding the early texts. Any field of learning sets parameters for what it investigates and how it investigates it. We've had the scientific method since at least the 17th century that bounces between empirical discovery or verification of objective data and hypothesis formation. Mathematics, art criticism, philosophy, law, music, psychology, and so on all have methods appropriate to their fields, sometimes explicitly stated, sometimes carried implicitly within an adept community. In each case, its defining method reflects but also shapes the character of the respective field by setting parameters for its scope of investigation and for its means of explanation. It's no different for the Buddha Vachana. The Buddha's method breaks down into four recognizable parameters, each of which the Buddha articulates explicitly and carefully, albeit in different places. Each of these plays a critical role in Buddha's formulation of dependent co-arising, for instance. The first parameter is practicality. The Buddha Vachana is limited to that which supports practice and produces benefit. The second parameter is subjectivity. The scope of the Buddha Vachana, its practice and its benefit are limited to the world as we experience it. The third parameter is insubstantiality. Experiencing things as real does not entail experiencing real things. And the fourth parameter is conditionality, the primary tool for discovering consistencies and structure is the discovery of dependencies. We find that the Buddha is not rigidly consistent, but rather consistently deliberate in imposing these parameters. They're sometimes finessed, but when they are a practical overriding concern is either clearly stated or easily discernible. 
In other words, practicality overrides the other parameters where appropriate. These parameters accordingly express themselves differently among the widely diverse fields of practice. For instance, in daily mindfulness, in meditation, in devotional rites, and in following ethical precepts. But the Buddhist method is nowhere more unmistakable than independent co-arising. Although time has preserved the earliest stratum of Buddhist texts well, it has not always faithfully upheld the intent of those texts. It makes sense that interpretations are most likely to falter when the Buddha's method is obscured and vice versa. Needless to say, understanding the Buddha's method is a vital aid to the student of early Buddhism. Practicality, the first parameter. The Buddha Vachana is practical in the sense that it functions entirely as a support for practice. And practice, in accord with the Buddha Vachana, produces benefit. A teaching would be impractical if it promoted no practice or if it promoted a practice that has no prospect of benefit. Practice is how we live our lives, and it encompasses ethical practices like generosity and precepts and contemplative practices such as studying and reflection on Dhamma. It encompasses mental arts like jhana practice or like maintaining constant kindness and mindfulness and encouragements to practice like remembrance of the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and so on. Like a cookbook, the Buddha Vachana provides the guidance and conceptual understanding necessary to develop and maintain a range of skillful activities. These activities tend toward spiritual attainments, ultimately toward awakening, but also toward more immediate well-being for self and others. Or, in the case of the culinary arts, good things to eat. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. The oft-recited recollection of the Dhamma attributes six qualities to the Dhamma as follows. The Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable to be personally experienced by the wise. Two qualities of the six listed are immediately expressive of the practicality of the Buddha Vachana. One, it is well expounded, and number five, it is applicable. To be well expounded requires that a teaching is, among other things, of benefit, to the point the Buddha tells us, those things which you might know thus, these things do not lead exclusively to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. You should definitely recognize this is not the Dhamma, this is not the discipline, this is not the teaching of the teacher. But those things which you might know thus, 
These things lead exclusively to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. You should definitely recognize this is the Dhamma, this is the discipline, this is the teaching of the teacher. The Buddha's speech, Buddhavachana, should always produce benefit. It should not uselessly overshoot. Applicable here is really synonymous with practical. Upanayaka comes from the verb upaneti, meaning conduce to, present, give, in other words, productive, which in particular suggests bringing practice to a conclusion and of leading one onward to nibbana, the soteriological benefit of practice. You may understand as the teacher's doctrine those things which you know lead to the goal. Practicality naturally entails that the Buddha would take care not to teach more than was necessary, and indeed parsimony is characteristic of the Buddha Vachana, which consistently discourages useless speculation and is agnostic towards views irrelevant to the practice of the Dhamma. Other factors of the Buddha's method enforce this agnosticism as well. This narrow focus on what is practical is made most clear in the famous handful of leaves simile. What do you think, monks? Which are the more numerous? The few leaves I have here in my hand, or those up in the trees of the grove? Lord, the fortunate one is holding only a few leaves. Those up in the trees are far more numerous. In the same way, monks, there are many more things that I have found out, but not revealed to you. What I have revealed to you is only a little. And why, monks, have I not revealed it? Because, monks, it is not related to the goal. It is not fundamental to the holy life. It does not conduce to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, tranquility, higher knowledge, awakening, or nibbana. That is why I have not revealed it. Speculative philosophy, irrelevant to spiritual development, is accordingly not buddha-vachana, but even practical dhamma should not be clung to once it has outlived its usefulness, that is, once it has produced awakening. The Buddha famously provides a simile for this mistake as building a raft in order to cross a body of water, then once on the other shore to be so absurdly pleased with the raft as to carry it hither and thither on one's back. Subjectivity, the second parameter. Practicality narrows the focus of the Buddha-vachana squarely to beneficial practice. Practice, in turn, occurs squarely in the world as we experience it, or as it appears to us, often called the phenomenal world. It's in this world that suffering arises, that our incentive for practice arises, 
that the factors arise that inform our karmic decisions that constitute our practice, that we experience the fruits of practice, that we're able to track our progress, that we gain confidence in the Dharma, and it's in this world that we awaken. The world of experience fundamental to practice contrasts with what we normally think of as natural reality or something objective and mostly beyond normal experience, the realm of science and scholarship, where things manage to persist or play out whether we experience them or not. But in fact, the word for world, loka, is itself understood in the Buddha Vachana precisely as this world of experience. In this fathom-long living body, along with its perceptions and thoughts, lies the world, the arising of the world, and the cessation of the world. Notice that subjectivity restricting the field of the Buddha Vachana, its practice and its benefits to what we actually experience to the world is a natural extension of practicality for what we cannot experience cannot be useful for material for our practice. The greatest challenge to subjectivity is spinning out into pointless intellectual proliferation and speculation which would unfortunately infect many later Buddhist traditions. By the same token, subjectivity reinforces the characteristic agnosticism of the Buddha Vachana and the skepticism about underlying mechanisms and substrata hidden beyond actual experience. This is not to say that there are no hidden things, To take a simple example, modern science has shown us that our experience of colors seems significantly to have a neurological basis. It is to say that speculating and debating about such underlying mechanisms can take us far afield from practice. Subjectivity is a methodological choice, not a theoretical position. In short, The world of experience is treated as a closed system, and the benefit of practice within that closed system is achieved as we learn to experience otherwise, in particular to experience in a more wholesome way, for instance, without anger or greed or bias. The Buddha's method is clearly distinguished from the scientific method, which is, to a great extent, exactly about explanation of things we generally don't experience in terms of hypothesized underlying factors that are even further removed from experience. We'll see momentarily that subjectivity therefore calls for a different kind of explanation, conditionality. We'll see later that subjectivity therefore calls for a different kind of explanation, conditionality, which is our fourth parameter of the Buddhist method. The parameter of subjectivity is expressed in no less than four of the six qualities of the Dhamma that I mentioned earlier. The Dhamma is, 
excluding the two factors already discussed, visible, immediate, to come and see, and to be experienced by the wise. These four factors speak to accessibility and verifiability in actual experience. Although the word subjectivity is more suggestive of the cognitive realm of contemplative practice, it also applies, albeit less strikingly, to the realm of bodily and verbal behavior. For instance, kamma is understood not simply as action, but as intentional action. If we accidentally roll over our cat's tail with a rocking chair, like I once did, we have not violated the precept against assaulting living things, for our intentions may have been pure in terms of what was given to us in our experiential world. This is in distinct contrast, for instance, to the Jain understanding of Kama, whose metaphysics is less forgiving. Similarly, serious monastic transgressions generally have an insanity clause. They are not violations for those of not right mind. In short, kamma, which is equivalent to practice, is made within the experiential world, not in conditions beyond our awareness. Within the cognitive teachings, of which the twelve lengths of dependent co-arising are the most comprehensive account, Subjectivity is comparable to what would be a phenomenological perspective in Western philosophy, with its locus on what we actually experience and suspension or bracketing of speculation about whatever mechanisms might underlie experience. Most modern Buddhist practitioners find the subjective perspective gratifying in their practice since it's based squarely on what we can see for ourselves directly, particularly in quiet, meditative states, in a nuts-and-bolts fashion, without obscure intellectual abstractions. Nonetheless, the material of our practice does go deeper than a naive apprehension of experience, for we train ourselves to become attuned to many experiential phenomena that we once overlooked. For instance, where we once experienced the dog, now we experience our awareness of our dog as well. That is, where once the dog seemed to be simply there, if we but show up, now we recognize that this experience does not arise without turning some mental effort towards the shapes and colors out of which our dog materializes. In fact, we may come to realize that all experience consists of awareness events, each an awareness of something. Two teachings of the Buddha that are very prominent serve to enforce this deeper subjective experience. The five aggregates, kanda or skanda, provide a scheme to divide up the world of experience with reference to modes of awareness, form, feeling, perception, formations, and cognizance. The sixfold sphere, also known as the six sense spheres, does much the same thing, 
but arrays the world in terms of sense channels. Our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, our body, and our mind. Either teaching defines a world of experience that is a complete basis for practice and also bears in mind the ever-present mental constructedness of experience. With reference to the sixfold sphere, in the six, the world has arisen, in the six, it holds concourse, on the six, themselves depending, in the six, it has woes. Our experiential world is dysfunctional, at least for most of us, in that it produces great suffering. The subjectivity of Buddha Vachana and practice gives us the opportunity to understand this dysfunction and through practice to learn to experience in a more wholesome way to experience otherwise and thereby to limit or overcome this dysfunction. We should acknowledge that hidden mechanisms sometimes seem to lie just below the surface or right on the margin of subjectivity, such that we cannot describe what we experience without at least hinting at an underlying mechanism that we do not entirely experience directly. Memory, for instance, would seem necessary to connect various awareness events to the same dog, our dog, on various occasions. Moreover, the description of fermentations, kamma, habit patterns, and formations seem to call for some form of memory, for these represent dispositions that, one, in most cases, are habituated by previous experience, two, lie dormant for long periods, but then three, manifest in the future as a condition for perceptual and intentional responses. In fact, Buddhist practice is substantially about rehabituating or abandoning such dispositions so that we act progressively in karmically more skillful ways. The point is that we experience A, then we later recall A, but that, in order for this to happen, A must have been stored in memory, but the storage seems hidden, but barely from our inner world. There are factors in the Dhamma that we do not experience directly and that are not subject to experiential verification. One is the link of dependent co-arising of birth, which is to say of rebirth. Similarly, we do not experience the Buddha directly, even though we take refuge in him. Few of us have had the opportunity to meet him in person. These are cases in which practicality overrides subjectivity, specifically in order to frame our practice in a way that instills wholeheartedness. In general, when a teaching goes beyond the parameter of subjectivity, we should always be able to ask for what practical basis the Buddha would teach that and expect to receive an answer to that question. Okay, we'll stop here for this week, and next week we'll take up the parameters of insubstantiality and conditionality 
in the Buddha's method.